Hello, this is Zach. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. We're about to play for you an interview with Dr. Charlie Camosi of Fordham University in which we talk to him about his brand new book, Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. But before I play the interview for you, I want to give you a heads up that we are going to be talking about this idea or this system of thought called the Consistent Life Ethic, or CLE, you may hear us refer to it as. And before we play for you this interview, it may be helpful if I read a, a, a list from Dr. Kamosi's book that outlines what exactly the consistent life ethic is. So I'm just going to read these seven principles and refer back to these when you hear us talk about the consistent life ethic, because this is what Dr. Kamosi is talking about. Number one, it is always wrong to radically reduce someone's inherent dignity for some other end. Number two, using violence ought to be resisted at every turn. Number three, in every circumstance, give priority to protecting and supporting the lives of the most vulnerable, especially those who cannot speak up in their own defense. Number four, resist appeals to individual autonomy and privacy that detaches from our duty to aid. Number five, resist language, practices, and social structures that detach us from the full reality and dignity of the marginalized. Number six, go to the peripheries, even when there is risk, showing hospitality and care for the stranger. And finally, last but not least, number seven, acknowledge mutuality, not only between human persons currently living, but also between current and future generations and between human persons and the rest of non-human creation. So with those seven principles of the consistent life ethic setting the stage for this interview, enjoy today's episode of Vernacular Podcast. All right, our guest for today is Dr. Charlie Camosi. He is an associate professor at Fordham University and the author of several books, including For Love of Animals, Beyond Christian, Peter Singer and Christian Ethics, and Beyond the Abortion Wars, and most recently, and this is our topic today, Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. Charlie, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Hi, Zach. Hi, Sally. Hi, we're glad to have you here today. And just to start us off, why don't you explain to our listeners why you decided to write this book? Well, lots of reasons, I suppose. Um, I guess the main one would be, or a main one would be, I've always been frustrated that a consistent life ethic um, has been so broadly misunderstood, especially in relation but not only in relation to the teaching of the Catholic Church. Often, at least in my experience, um, pro-lifers uh, disparage it as being kind of milk toast or not very serious, or sometimes people who are antagonistic to the pro-life movement use it as a tool to say, stop being so obsessive over abortion, euthanasia, you know, expand your views. And what one major thing I was trying to do in this book is to to show how that both of those kind of approaches are mistaken, that it's done correctly and done um, from my perspective as a Catholic, thinking through the views of Pope St. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, it really resists those kind of either or left-right um, kind of approaches. And then finally, I'd say, um, you know, maybe the primary reason, I guess, is an evangelical one. So I, I, I've found a consistent life ethic when seen through the lens of resisting throwaway culture is just incredibly helpful for being evangelical when it comes to the pro-life movement. So people who are skeptical or don't know much about the pro-life movement, at least again, in my experience, find this kind of 
lens and framework, very edifying, very interesting. And then um, more broadly, it helps, um, again, at least in my experience, people come to see the gospel in a way that uh, maybe they otherwise wouldn't be open to. Yeah, I can see how with skeptics of pro-life ethics, they would be willing to at least give you the time of day if they find that you're consistent across all issues in terms of your your vehement love of life. <laughs> I'll take vehement, yeah. <laughs> um, so who did you write this book for? Well, I hope it has multiple audiences. I don't think one needs to be a, a Catholic or even a Christian necessarily to read the book with profit, um, though I think it might help. I, um, as mentioned earlier, I, I really focus the book around seven principles, which are grounded in my Christian um, ethics and Christian the- theological commitments. But the actual principles themselves are not principles that would have to be rejected by uh, Christians or Catholics. Far from it. I, I tried to articulate um the principles in ways that pretty much anybody could accept or reject them, regardless of their particular confessional status. So, for instance, if just in principle two, violence ought to be resisted at every turn, that seems to be something that people from multiple constituencies can get behind. And I hope I hope many many people of many different um, faiths and those of no faith can get behind it as well. Um, but I guess I have two main audiences I was focusing in on. One is, um, again, people who are skeptical of consistent life ethic. I I guess this is the audience I had primarily in mind. I wanted to make sure faithful Christian pro-lifers who are skeptical of the CLE got the most, um, from my perspective, the most convincing take on, a, on the consistent life ethic that they possibly could. And, and they couldn't be dismissed in the ways that Maybe under, understandably, they've dismissed it in the past. Um, so that's the primary one. A, a secondary one, I guess, would be um, again those who are skeptical of the pro-life movement and could need a, uh, or I would say, can find their way best into uh, the movement through this through this pathway from a consistent life ethic. So yeah, those are the those are the two main audiences, I guess. Well, I was mostly intrigued by this book at first by the subtitle because we've talked on the podcast before about throwaway culture. We had a guest on a couple of months ago to talk about it. And that terminology, of course, is from Pope Francis. Not that he's the first one to use it, but it refers to this idea that we often treat humans and non-human animals and the environment as means rather than ends. And that's, that's a product of a consumerist culture, as you explain in depth in the book. But the subtitle, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People?, I think really grabbed me right now because we live in a very polarized age. And I mean, look, the the three of us here are pretty young people. I can't say definitively that this is the most polarized America has ever been. And we've come (laughs) through a civil war, so that's that's a pretty polarized moment there. But certainly in our lifetimes, this is the most polarized that it's been. And it seems like we, we don't have a path to unity. So I do appreciate the way that you wrote this book to, in some, in some respects, both ends of that spectrum to the, you know, the sort of, pro-life right-wing crowd who has rejected certain parts of the consistent life ethic and the part who has uh, uh, the part who's you know been advocating animal rights and the abolition of the death penalty but rejected uh, a pro-life view of abortion issues and I, I really appreciate the way you synthesize those two ideas and offer a path forward 
in accordance with those seven principles. And I think that's really important. But I think one question I have for you is how much optimism do you have about whether or not there, whether or not there's really opportunity for these ideas to take root for someone who has been cultivated in a sort of activist mindset on one end or the other to read this book and think, oh yeah, there's something that I'm missing here. And I'm thinking of your point you mentioned in the book in the animal rights chapter. You mentioned a scholar named Mary Eberstadt who has a, a fantastic essay in First Things. And in that essay, she points out that pro-life activists and animal rights activists, I think she says something like they're, um, they have a, a common moral intuitionism that makes them comrades even if they don't realize it. And so there's, right. there's something there but how optimistic are you that this book can help get people there? Well, um, it would, I would have delusions of grandeur if I thought this book would be the primary way. I, I guess I'm hopeful that um, pro-life activists and thinkers will read the, who are skeptical, again, the consistent life ethic, will be able to read this book and say, hey, there's something here that you know, if I dismissed Bernadine or if I, you know, didn't read Evangelium Vitae too carefully, there's something here that maybe, you know, I, I passed over too quickly. And that could, in fact, make one optimistic about getting purchase across a left-right binary or a non-Catholic, non-Christian, uh, Catholic-Christian binary. Um, and I, I guess I am optimistic about the possibility of not necessarily my book being the primary way that this happens, but if if we recover, um, which is essentially a tradition, this goes back, well, in some ways it goes back to, to Jesus himself, in many ways it does. Um, but if we're talking about a specific kind of um, uh, tradition, it goes even back well before Bernadine even. Um, one of my favorite uh, books is by Daniel K. Williams called Defenders of the Unborn, where he Really, he's a historian, and he highlights how a major part of what would become the pro-life movement, or even was at the time called the pro-life movement, came out of the anti-Vietnam War movement. Right, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? And we—it's hard. It's almost makes. It almost seems like it's just bananas to think about that, given our current um, way we organize ourselves. Right. But but these pro-lifers. This is before Roe. These pro-lifers held rallies where they would burn their birth certificates, much like they would burn their. Um, draft cards because they thought it was a tool of government oppression that they would simply say, well, at this point you have value. And, uh, you know, before that point you don't have value. Wow. And, um, and so I love that anecdote because it really does highlight this tradition, which blows up our current um, polarized binary, goes back a very long way, at least, um, well, not as far as Catholics and Christians understand, but at least politically, it goes back a very long way in the United States. And so I see us in this new moment, actually, and it's not just me, we're current, we're clearly in, in some sort of major political realignment where you know, the boundaries of various parties aren't clear. People are switching and moving around. Um, in in my own, our own faith, in the Catholic faith, there are people even talking about, you know, uh, things that haven't been talked about in two or three centuries in terms of options that people are even starting to consider. So I actually think this is a really hopeful moment to be talking about this because you know, maybe a decade or so ago or two decades ago, this kind of argument might fall on deaf ears. But more and more people 
I think are in a place where, they, where they're willing to say, hey, you know, maybe because of this new moment, I'm willing to think about this in a different way. I'm more open-minded about thinking that the old binary um, from the moral majority of the early 80s is not long for this world. Yeah, I share your optimism, actually, Charlie. And part of that is because in the beginning of your book, I think it was in chapter one, you outline how a lot of young people are really fed up with our binary atmosphere. And they, they themselves are frustrated by the increased polarization. And I think you, you mentioned that you know, enthusiasm for a potential third party is higher than it's been in a long time. And so we, we could see sort of some s- systemic or systematic shakeups of the way our, our, our civil society and political system is operating. But on a deeper level, too, I think young people are open to new ideas. And I think, you know, vegetarianism and veganism, to use one thing that you talk about in the book, is taking off and it's much more popular among a younger crowd. You know, I think part of that might be attributed to a sort of hipster sub-influence, but the influence (laughs) is still there, right? I mean, it's still people who are are making those choices. And uh, it's normally not for health reasons. It's normally for uh, moral and ethical uh, persuasion reasons. So um, I also share your optimism. And I want to use that as a segue to sort of jump into this uh, this you know one one aspect in which this book sort of challenges the left right divide, because I was reading your book, uh, Sally and I are very pro life, nodding along at every every point at which you mention pro life issues. You mentioned capital punishment. I'm um, really the entire book. I'm nodding along, and I get to your animal rights chapter, and oh boy, <laughs> and, and this this is stuff that I haven't I haven't thought about seriously, and I'm yeah. I'm ashamed to admit that, but I haven't really thought about it seriously, and. Some of the statistics you cite, some of the the conditions that you describe in slaughterhouses and on factory farms, legitimately horrifying. And your book has prompted a lot of conversations between Sally and I in our in our household because we might well, want to make some lifestyle changes because of what you're talking about. And I think a, a part of it is just information and getting it out there. But I I do share your optimism that young people, as they encounter these ideas, will recognize the sort of incoherence of the convictions that they've held thus far and uh, and, and change accordingly. And, and maybe we'll see some effects from that. And I think that's the thing they, inclu- they, and us included want to be coherent, want to be consistent right, in right. our life ethic. And so if you accept that at the beginning of your book and say, okay, I'm on board with the idea of a consistent life ethic and then see you apply it across the board, that's really compelling. And that's, it's very challenging. Yeah, so I, I did want to ask you, so I mentioned the animal rights thing. For me, that was the most challenging, and that's the best example of something that cuts across partisan divides. But what else would you point to as a good example of how the consistent life ethic can challenge everyone on the ideological spectrum? Well, in some ways, that's the theme of the book. So I hope um, anyone reading the book will have maybe a few dozen examples of this. Here's here's one of my favorite ones, though. Other, uh, although you stole the one that's most that I love to invoke the most. Um, back when people used to wear um, rubber bands around their wrists for various kinds of causes, I used to have one that said pro life, and I had another one that said vegetarian. So people didn't know what to make. Oh, nice, me. yeah. <laughs> they, um, a walking enigma. Uh, the one of the most striking quotes in response to uh, proposals, uh, which are not talked about that much anymore, but around the 2016 um, general election, were talked about a lot. Um, the the concept of mass deportation of immigrants. There's one of my favorite bishops is Bishop Daniel Flores of Brownsville, Texas, which is a border town in Texas of about a million Catholics, and he compared. 
strikingly uh, mass deportation of immigrants to uh, driving someone to an abortion clinic. And the reason, and he, he called both, exam both examples of things that were intrinsically evil. And um, he said, uh, when somebody is marked for death or at risk of extreme violence, sending them back indiscriminately like that is not the same. It's an, it's an, he's making an analogy, and all analogies limp, obviously. But he's trying to show just how important the concern for violence is when we indiscriminately send people back to places where they're marked for death or at risk for serious violence, including sexual violence. And I just love that quote because it really, much like comparing, um, uh, you know, vegetarianism to broad pro-life ethic, it kind of jolts, at least in my experience in, in, in um, talks and other contexts, um, it kind of jolts people and gets them to take a different um, kind of approach. It, it, it kind of shocks them out of their normal right, left way of thinking about this because there's nobody more anti-abortion pro-life than Bishop Flores. He's right. not trying to downplay abortion here. He's trying to upplay um, what it means to um, mass deport people to places that are at risk for serious violence. And uh, and that's that that to me is just a classic example. And um, another one uh, might be um, how uh, one theme throughout the book, um, and it, it's in one of the principles, is how violence is um, uh, received and how it affects the agent of violence. And that's one of the ways that I think we can see most clearly how uh, the violence with which the CLE is concerned um, really transcends right-left issues. Because if we're talking about abortion doctors, for instance, there's just well-documented evidence now that um, participating in abortions really wrecks your soul. And um, the violence that somebody, somebody inflicts on non-human animals in factory farms really wrecks your soul. The violence that somebody um, inflicts in the death penalty or euthanasia really wrecks your soul. Or, even, or being a prison warden, you mentioned in the book as well. Prison warden, prison warden. Even even cases where you might not expect it to, like you might think, well, you know, the people um, in various U.S. Um, military bases flying um, drones remotely and shooting Hellfire missiles um, down onto people. That maybe that they wouldn't have the same kind of. Um, soul-crushing, um, soul-destroying impact on them from their violence. But that's, that's not true either. Even even that kind of pseudo-video game violence, though it's all too real, has a deep impact on um, those drone operators as well. And so when, when we see that, across, again, across the spectrum of, of issues, on right, left, um, uh, red, blue, uh, Democrat, Republican issues, uh, I think that's another way of kind of entering um, the conversation that blows up the right-left binary and, and leaves people saying, wow, you know, if this is true across these range of issues, maybe my kind of lens for organizing my thoughts about these needs to be rethought. I thought you, um, another good example of cutting across the partisan divide was your argument about the duty to aid and that often a pro-life person will say, well, a woman who... Um, gives birth or a woman who is pregnant through sexual violence, she still has a duty to care for that child, even though right. it was not her choice at all. Uh, and then comparing that to immigrants and how we have a duty to aid people who are 
um, in great need or, or poverty or any sort of example where there's aid that's needed and yet we are not the direct or indirect cause of, of their situation. And I just thought that was, um, you, you could easily catch someone by surprise who, you know, who reads the pro-life chapter and they're like, oh yes, I'm on board with that. But then they read about other people who need aid and they realize, wow, am I willing to give aid to them as well? Yeah. The, um, the, if anybody's ever said in a philosophy class, where they talked about abortion, probably they've been forced to read the argument from Judith Jarvis Thompson of course, about yeah, yeah. The being, violinist. Being, uh, <laughs> yeah. being attached to the violinist. And it doesn't really work except in cases where somebody is in fact attached to another human being by a violent act. And, and there, I think it does actually challenge pro-lifers to give an account. Okay. So why, especially if it's an indirect abortion, we're talking about not a direct abortion. What, what exactly is the reason my, my, uh, it's not like being attached to the violinist or, or, or should it be, thought of as being attached to the violinist and and we end up with a really hardcore duty to aid and when it comes to those and rightly so in my opinion <clears throat> but um as sally just mentioned you know we got to follow that principle wherever it goes we if we have that hardcore duty to aid in that situation then we have it wherever that need exists <clears throat> so i want to use that comment from you actually as a jumping off point because you mentioned in your book that the violinist analogy doesn't really work unless there's a victim of a of a sexual a sexually violent act, and the reason is that abortion uh, is obviously related to the procreation of a human being, and that is intrinsically and inseparably inseparably linked to sex. And right. in fact, you spend three chapters of your book talking about <laughs> sex or sex related issues. I think there's a there's a uh, chapter on the hookup culture. There's a chapter on reproductive. Uh, biotechnology, and there's a chapter on abortion, all of which uh, have you know uh, sex features prominently in all of them, right? right? And so, I think on the one hand, you open yourself up to this charge that you are a you know prudish moralist who's just obsessed with sex, and you want to uh, you know control what people do in the bedroom, etc. I obviously don't buy into that criticism, but what would you say to that criticism? And then the the second thing, maybe this is part of what you, what you would say to it, is why is sex so important to our understanding of our own humanity? and to our rejection of this throwaway culture? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I um, teach at a fairly prominent university on the East Coast, and you don't need to be somebody who has a conservative view. I'm here to tell you. You don't need to be somebody that has a conservative view or a traditional view on sex from coming from a Christian perspective to be to understand just how important sex is. Like this this is all the academy talks about. So whether one is the secular academy or the theological academy. And they that's because there is something that we get. It, whether we're religious or not religious, we get that sex is just absolutely inherent to the well-being of our of 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 humanity that is fundamental to who we are i mean here we are in our post uh, you know hashtag me too moment and i don't uh, given this moment i don't know how anybody could possibly de de deny that anymore <laughs> the idea that um, you know the old adage all, all we need to do is stay out of people's bedrooms is laughably absurd now right given that we know how sexual power has been uh, wielded and abused against populations tragically in our own churches but more broadly in the culture as well and so it's just because sex is so central to who we are we now are coming to understand just the massive damage done to human beings when they have that part of themselves so violated 
But, um, you know, it's not just rape culture, but hookup culture that I argue in the book anyway is classic example of throwaway culture. You know, the whole point of hookup culture, in fact, is is about trying to use another person as a thing, as an object, and not connect to them as a person. The whole point is to avoid connecting to them as a person, in fact, and then to discard them when they're no longer needed. Um, in fact, I think we see, in my view, I think we see sex so much today as is just using an object or thing rather than encountering a person that without a countercultural, I argue for in the book of, of encounter and hospitality, it's difficult to see how we don't just continue down this road in more dramatic ways. I mean, we're already there when it comes to, um, you know, uh, you know, I think the average age at which a somebody that sees porn on a smartphone is like age 11 or, t- or 12 or something ridiculous like that. It's, outrageous. It's, just, it's just outrageous. But uh, sex robots are on the way. And they're going to be extremely realistic and they're going to have artificial intelligence. And unless we shift course to really seeing sex as inherently about a relationship with another person, encountering another person, um, I don't see how we don't avoid that becoming the normative way we engage. And then, obviously, having separated, um, you know, uh, sex from a sort of unitive aspect with a person, we're obviously separating it from procreation or better reproduction, where the word product is even in the phrase we use. And uh, that's where I tried to argue in the book that reproductive biotechnology and abortion really like just caved totally to our consumer culture, where because it's disconnected from um, a unit of sex, um, it, you know, we just see that that process is just any other kind of, you know, transaction in the marketplace, consumerist transaction in the marketplace. In fact, there's this amazing article from the New York Times that I cite, and this will be the last point on this, um, uh, where it was, the, I think the title of the article was called The Two Minus One Pregnancy, where they're talking about um, selective reduction of twins or triplets via abortion. Right. And the woman in the piece uh, was quoted in the piece saying, you know, if we had just had this pregnancy naturally, maybe we wouldn't have done this. But because it was done with artificial, you know, biotechnology, she actually said that the pregnancy just felt so consumerish from the beginning that just felt like a natural thing to do, you know, because they weren't ready for uh, twins, I think it was. I mean, it's just so striking. This person has no theolo- moral theological background. They're not thinking at all like throwaway culture or CLE, but they, they were able to articulate that somehow the consumerist nature of the pregnancy led them to think about selective reduction as just kind of like the natural process and process of thinking about this. Yeah, I remember reading that in your book and, and Sally as, as yeah. well. We talked about it. It was amazing. It was a striking example of moral intuition from somebody who hasn't deeply thought about these ideas, but it, she was being incredibly honest. It very clearly illustrated that when you separate the procreative aspects of sex from what it is. It changes your whole mindset. Yeah, and then you convert the procreative aspects of our humanity to these you know, mechanistic processes. Then you do it in a clinic and have embryos implanted. It's a totally different idea. Totally and, different. And in, in your book, you pose this question, and I think it, it, it struck me, but I think it's a reasonable one given the case you've laid out are we facing the end of sex? Is sex as we know it disappearing? And we're going to have a future in which people are just interacting with their sex robots instead. Because we're already at a point where I think it's, it's conceivable that an otherwise healthy couple would 
not have would not conceive a child on their own would just you know have sex for recreation purposes and leave the procreation to IVF where they could selectively uh, identify the genetic material that they wanted in their next child and and choose the traits of that child and the sex of that child and all of that because it might be seen as a sort of cleaner process and easier yep. managed process we're already there and so if we're already there you know is there a future where we're going to see the end of procreative sex entirely and i think it's very very possible yeah i i only ones asking this question. There are plenty of secular folks who are asking this very question, and maybe not with the kind of horror that we have in the back of our minds sure, as we're yeah. asking the question um, for, for precisely the reasons you laid out. Uh, on a particular view, uh, following that view consistently, it, it makes sense. Um, you know, why have sex with a person with all their flaws and um, undesirable traits? Uh, when you can have sex made to order by right. a robot that just arrives at your house, or that can even be reprogrammed, sometimes reprogrammed in very disturbing ways. Right. Um, uh, and and if we're taking a you know a reproduction approach, um, we're going to want some quality control over the product that we're putting our time and money and investment into. Who's going to want to end up with something that's defective, right? If that's the kind of approach that we're taking instead of welcoming a gift from God, um, you know, into our homes, uh, you know, hospitality or in the case of a woman beautifully into their very bodies, into their very personhood, embodied personhood. Um, uh, why not? Uh, if we reject that way of approaching it, think of it as purely a, um, consumerist transaction where we want quality control over the product. So what it's tough to see why, um, you know, if, if this continues, we wouldn't have something close to the end of sex. My, I still ask my bioethics students to uh, watch Gattaca at the end of the semester. I don't know if you've heard Good choice. With it. No, yeah. we are the, very familiar with it. Yeah, good choice. I, I was actually thinking of Gattaca rec well, earlier in this conversation because you mentioned the effects of drone warfare, and the director of Gattaca is a guy named Andrew Nichols, and he has a movie called Good Kill, which is kind of a dud as far as Andrew Nichols goes. The idea is good, but it, it stars Ethan Hawke as a drone pilot in the Las Vegas no way. Nevada I desert. No watch this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I mean... Yeah, let me know what you think of the movie. I didn't think it was that good, but I appreciate the ideas Nichols was What he conveying. was trying to convey, yeah. Because basically this guy had, had severe PTSD from what he was doing, administering death from half a world away via drone. Wow, it's so interesting that the director and actor, I guess, Ethan Hawke was um, right in... Uh was he in, yeah, wasn't he in uh, Gattaca? Yeah, he was, yep. he's the yep. main guy. Yeah, yeah, he's the main character, yeah. yeah. So that's very interesting. Um, but, but yeah, so it's what, the question I ask after my students watch Gattaca, we kind of watch it as like, or at least part of it as the final, you know, party class at the end of the year. And I just ask, like, tell me how we stop from becoming Gattaca. Right, right. <laughs> that's, that's kind of like the question I finish with at the end of the course. And um, it's tough. It's really tough for them to see, given current trends, how we don't end up in a place where, you know, a traditional birth is just dismissed as a religious birth or that um, people who are, you know, created via traditional sex are called invalid because they have not been, um, you know, sufficiently uh, created and manipulated via um, what today I guess we're calling CRISPR, but back then didn't have the language to use. Right. So, yeah, I, I, that movie really holds up in my opinion, and uh, and we need we need to keep asking those questions. Yeah, we agree. 
And just to turn that question around on you, how, how do we avoid becoming that society today? How do we, your, your book is not about policy prescriptions. Um, right. and, and you acknowledge that many times and that would be a much longer project, but how do you just briefly, how, as our final question, how can we get from the consistent life ethic in idea to, to policy and, um, in our political framework? Well, this is maybe the most, well, I, I, I guess it's not, I make a lot of controversial claims in the book, but this is a controversial claim. I think we need to take our, um, take our attention off of just the next election cycle or whoever, you know, how many months does Ginsburg have to live, you know, or something like that. That's not, those are not helpful questions for the kind of project, at least that I'm interested in trying to help engage, which is a more fundamental project of changing the culture. So I think we need to do our best every day to engage people, to, to live a culture of encounter in our own lives, not just with regard to even, um, you know, the very highly charged issues that are um, at the center of the book, though I think that is a must, just in our own lives, you know, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody. You know, I, I would love to put my earbuds in almost wherever I go so I don't have to talk to somebody. But um, just having the general orientation of openness and willingness to encounter others, especially across difference, <clears throat> I really believe that's the way we're going to change a throwaway culture into a culture of encounter and hospitality where we where we actually do see people as people and not as mere things to be let into our lives when they're convenient or discarded and discarded when they're not. If we're going to take, you know, especially Christ's commands in Matthew 25 seriously, we have to see especially his face in the least among us and not just see his face, but then minister directly to those people through a culture of encounter. And, and frankly, I, you know, I'm in my mid forties. I'm, not as old as some, but I'm not young either. And how many times are we going to keep on going on this merry-go-round of just waiting for the next election cycle or the next Supreme Court justice? I don't, I've spent most of my, much of my life worrying about those things. And with this project, I guess I'm trying to signal that those, though, though I can understand why those things are alluring and even in many cases important, the, the fundamental work, especially of Christians, it seems to me, is to build a counterculture, a, a, a culture of the, uh, you know, of the gospel, preaching the gospel to all nations. And um, that's that's where I think we ought to kind of redirect our focus, especially given the toxicity and incoherence of our current political culture. I think that's absolutely spot on, Charlie. And it reminds me of the Jonah Goldberg quote that you mentioned in your book a couple times, I think, in which Goldberg says, Polit politics cannot fill the hole in our souls. And, right. and there is a tendency. I can't speak for, for those around the world. Uh, I think I can speak for at least the Western developed world. There's a tendency, I know in the United States, to think that our salvation rises and falls with the four-year election cycle. And we idolize our national politicians, and we forget, especially as Christians in the United States, we forget that the second commandment is not to love your ideologically aligned fellow citizen, <laughs> <laughs> but to love your neighbor. And just like you're saying, it's about a culture of encounter. So I think we need to be much more willing to go out there and encounter our neighbor and be much less concerned with what's going on in Washington, D.C. Not to say that those things don't matter. Obviously, they do and they can. And good policy matters, and we need good policymakers to make that policy. But what we really need to unite a fractured people is to build this culture of encounter that you talk about in your book. 
So it's well said. I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, on this interview to talk about the book. We'd love to have you on again, the podcast in the future to talk about some more of these ideas and explore them when we have a little bit more time and can dive a little deeper. But thank you so much to our listeners. Go check out Dr. Charles Camozzi's Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. We're linking to it in our show notes. You can find it right there. Look no further. And Charlie, thank you so much for coming out today. My pleasure. I'm by